Andrew Sadik, known to his family and friends simply as a smooth and shy young man, was quiet, introspective, and connected with the natural world. His deep-rooted passion with the outdoors, like farming and fishing, as well as his inclination to build relationships, was cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved death in an unknown time period soon after 2am on May the 1st, 2014, leaving all who knew him across his hometown of Valley City, North Dakota, grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. As a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the death of Andrew Sadik and the rain cloud of questions left at Red River in Breckenridge, Minnesota. This is Cold Case Detective. Andrew Sadik was born on November 22, 1993, to parents John and Tammy in Valley City, North Dakota. Growing up in a rural part of the United States, Northern Midwest, Andrew was surrounded by the natural world and the farming lifestyle from an early age. His extended family owned and operated a cattle ranch near Rogers, North Dakota, and thus Andrew learned the ropes of agriculture right from the beginning. He especially loved fishing and hunting, as well as spending summer afternoons cooped up in an old garage, working on hobby cars. It was an idyllic, serene, Norman Rockwell-styled image of life in Simpleville, USA. Andrew was also a younger sibling and grew up with an older brother, Nicholas. The two spent many days together throughout their youth and reaped the benefits of a beautiful home life and close-knitted family. However, tragedy actually struck the Sadik bloodline almost a decade prior to Andrew's death. In 2005, Nicholas was unexpectedly killed at a railroad crossing in North Dakota, struck by a train whilst in the car with his then-girlfriend. The train tracks were unmarked and the crash was accidental, but the tragedy pained all of those involved nonetheless. The Sadik family was broken, but pushed on through life as the years wore on. From being a toddler through elementary school to his years as a teenager, Andrew was always considered a shy and introverted boy. He rarely broke from his inner circle of friends and peers and steered clear of trouble in school. After the sudden loss of his brother, Andrew struggled to fully heal from such a piercing wound, but persevered through, keeping to himself and sticking to his virtues. Andrew graduated Valley City High School and sought out higher education to continue his academic career and study to become an electrical technician. Thus, Andrew enrolled in 2012 at North Dakota State College of Science in Wapaton. The program offered a chance at a two-year degree and an opportunity for Andrew to chase a passion of his and set up a fruitful future. In his first year, Andrew lived just as he had done all throughout high school. He was a vigorous studier, stayed away from parties, and focused on the educational aspects of college. However, as his time there went by, Andrew slowly evolved from his shy personality, making new friends and taking advantage of the freedom college afforded him. He soon started spending more nights out and about, continuing to create new relationships. 
In 2013, his social blossoming peaked, as rumours allegedly claim this was the time period in which Andrew began selling marijuana across campus, a very small operation that would sadly lead to humongous consequences and spawn an endless pitfall of mystery. In April of 2013, Andrew makes his first confirmed sale of marijuana to other college peers using the parking lot at North Dakota State CS. Sometime between April and October of the same year, he ends up making sales to confidential informants. Andrew's fellow students, who were working for the Southeast Multi-County Agency, also known as SEMCA. SEMCA is a task force comprised of police officers from drug enforcement agencies around southeastern North Dakota counties of Ransom, Richland, and Sargent counties, in addition to the neighboring Minnesota county of Wilkin. The first sale was for 3.5 grams for $60, the second being just one gram for $20. As a result of the sale to CI, Semka performed a search of Andrew's college dorm room in November of 2013, with consent from Andrew himself. The agents discover marijuana residue on an orange plastic grinder and Andrew admits ownership of the tainted item, but is neither arrested or charged with a crime. However, the day after Semka searched his dorm room, Andrew is summoned by Jason Weber, Semka officer and Richland County Sheriff Deputy. Jason informs Andrew that under North Dakota law, selling marijuana on a college campus is a Class A felony. To avoid a possible 40-year sentencing based on consecutive charges, Andrew agrees to become a confidential informant for Semka on that fateful November day. Before November comes to a close, Andrew makes his first two buys as a CI, a pair of controlled purchases in the amount of $60 each for 3.5 grams, just like his original sale. A couple months later in January of 2014, Andrew orchestrates a different controlled purchase of similar size to the November operations, but still under the oversight of Semka. After the January buys, Andrew decides he has had enough of the confidential informant life and stops all controlled dealing with Semka. Semka announces they only need him to make two more official purchases, one from a known dealer whom Andrew used to buy from himself, as well as one from a new unidentified dealer. Completing these buys would release Andrew from his CI obligations and allegedly from Semka in general, but Andrew dismisses the project. However, Andrew does keep in contact with Jason Weber on a monthly basis until April of 2014. In between, Andrew prepares for his future by traveling to places like Bismarck and Grand Forks, North Dakota, to interview for job positions as an electrician. He also begins dating a new girlfriend and setting himself up well for life after college. In the final weekend of the month, April 25th and 26th, Andrew returns home to Rogers, North Dakota to visit with family and help out with the cattle ranch. In the evening of the 26th, Andrew returns to his dormitory and talks to his mother over the phone. The pair discuss their cell phone plan and its data limit reaching the max. It would be the last contact Andrew makes with his family. A few days pass by and on April 30th, Andrew goes out with his roommate Drew Kugel and a few other friends for a nightlife adventure. The band of friends return to Norgard Hall, the name of the men's living quarters, and watch a movie together. The movie finishes and Drew and Andrew head to bed. A couple of hours later, at around 2am on May the 1st, 2014, 
Security cameras around Norgood Hall capture Andrew walking out of the building. He wears a Tampa Bay Buccaneers sweatshirt with a hood, carries a black book bag on his back and possesses his phone, though that is turned off at the moment. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Andrew whilst alive. When Drew wakes up later that morning on May the 1st, he notices Andrew is missing, but doesn't feel much concern, assuming Andrew went to visit his girlfriend. That afternoon, however, Drew and friends realize Andrew never returned for his classes and quickly report him missing to the NDSCS campus police. Not long after the report is filed, police discover the CCTV footage of Andrew and report it to fellow law enforcement agencies. Semka gets wind of Andrew's disappearance and immediately speculate that he ran away to avoid the confidential informant work he still owed to authorities. In an attempt to persuade Andrew back home, Semka charges Andrew with the two felonies they originally threatened him a year earlier in 2013. A few days after the disappearance, with no sign or trace of Andrew discovered, the Sadik family pleaded for him to return, asking he return and assist with the spring carving on their ranch, but to no avail. From early May to late June of 2014, investigators combed the surrounding areas around North Dakota State College of Science. They interview family members, friends, peers, and associates. They trudge through woods and scale any and all suspicious terrain. Their 50-day search appears all for nothing until a breakthrough strikes after spring turns to summer. On June 27, 2014, a police dive team discovers a body in the waters of Red River near Breckenridge, Minnesota, across the way from Wapperton, during a training exercise and not an intentional search for Andrew. They confirm his identity after a dental records hit matches DNA profiles. Even after a thorough autopsy by both the medical examiner and state police, the cause of death is announced as a gunshot wound to the head, but cannot be confirmed as either a suicide or homicide. These findings split law enforcement from the Sadik family, who were certain Andrew wouldn't end his own life, while Semka and North Dakota authorities said Andrew committed suicide to permanently escape the CI work. Regardless, the inconsistent casework and unspecified results have cast Andrew Sadik's death in a whirlwind of inconclusivity. On his birthday, November the 22nd, 2013, Andrew Sadik was brought into the Richland County Sheriff's Office by Jason Weber of Semka after he and other authorities discovered weed residue in Andrew's dorm room and the information that Andrew was selling marijuana on campus. What ensued was a cool, calm, and collected police interrogation that may hold more clues in context than the casual viewer will pick up on. Take a look. It's your birthday today. Probably not what you want to be doing on your birthday, huh? Tell your roommate what you have going on. Alright, that's probably a good thing. Alright, well, you expressed interest that you probably want to help yourself out. Yeah. Okay, like I said, you're facing two felonies and then, of course, a misdemeanor charge from yesterday. Two felonies uh, of deliveries uh, since they took place on campus, both of them. Um, they're enhanced, so they're Class A felonies. Uh, 20 years in prison, $20,000 fine. 
that are both. Okay, so potentially the max is 40 years in prison, $40,000 fine. You understand that? Yeah. Okay. Obviously, you're probably not going to get 40 years, but uh, is it a good possibility that you're going to get pr some prison time? Um, if you don't help yourself out, yeah, there is. Okay. That's probably not a way to start off your young adult life and your career, right? So, um, what I'm going to ask for you to do is to do some buys for me then. Okay, where you'd have to wear a wire, you'd have to go buy marijuana from individuals, and then, um, you know, depending upon how you do and so forth, you know, a lot of this could go away. You know, are you, is it all going to go away? Probably not. Are you going to probably have to plead guilty to like maybe a misdemeanor possession of marijuana? Probably, you know. Um, but at least you're not pleading guilty to felonies. Okay, is that fair enough? Very fair. Okay. Uh, is there individuals that you know on campus or around town or whatever that you can buy from? There's one chick that sells out of the campus apartments that I know of. Who's that? I'm not sure on the name, but I have a few buddies that buy from her. Okay. Would it be uncommon for you to buy that much though? Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you went and bought that much, would it be like, what the hell? Probably. Maybe, I don't know. If you went and bought an ounce? That would be more reasonable. That'd be more reasonable to say you're trying to sell mix money on campus? Yeah. Okay. We could probably, we could probably entertain that idea, you know, setting you up with Fargo. That's a different task force, but if you're willing to help them out, then, you know, I'd give you your credit down here. Yeah. Or, who, you can't buy from anybody else? Not, like, I have a lot of people that I can talk to and find out buyers, but no. The first portion of the interview contains some pretty common passive-aggressive tactics used by law enforcement, especially considering the youth and inexperience Andrew has in terms of dealing with police. They make an unnecessary comment about Andrew spending his birthday with authorities, immediately followed by the fact that Andrew's offence is technically a Class A felony in the state of North Dakota. The officer continues with barrage of negatives hinting that the smart move would be for Andrew to help a CA. The later half of the video is a bit hard to dissect, but does provide some interesting information that might have led to Andrew's deteriorating outlook on his situation. The deputy asks what's the biggest amount Andrew thinks he could purchase is, and when Andrew says a number higher than he's used to, the officer hints he still might need Andrew to make an outlier buy, which could raise the stakes for Andrew's credibility. The officer also makes a comment that he thinks Semka could arrange for Andrew to go into Fargo, North Dakota as well, to make controlled purchases as a CI and gather intel in a bigger city with a different seller. Fargo is of course a much trickier prospect, in terms of Andrew's experience. Andrew just slung minimal amounts of marijuana around his college campus, venturing into Fargo, North Dakota, would elevate beyond small-time drug dealing. While it's not a major threat, or even intended to scare Andrew, just the fact that Jason Webber spewed the idea into Andrew's subconscious could have planted the seed of a bigger issue. Andrew, growing miserable with having the expectations of helping police, going behind his friend's back, and most importantly, jumping into the shadowy situation of crossing paths of bigger players who could entertain harsh consequences if he's spotlighted as a narc.
A vast majority of law enforcement personnel and some followers of the case do not budge from the idea that Andrew Sadek committed suicide. The Semka officers involved with the confidential informants claimed many of their CIs were hard-pressed to get out of their situations, many of them abandoning their responsibilities to purposefully be arrested, rather going to jail than continue making controlled drug exchanges. While Andrew certainly didn't enjoy having to work for Semka, he never outright said he wasn't going to do it anymore or showed explicit signs that it was stressing him out. In addition, Andrew never displayed suicidal tendencies, nor had any known struggles with mental illness. While that doesn't rule out suicide, having zero history of ideation, combined with an improved social and personal life at the time of his disappearance, creates more than a reasonable doubt in the majority's theory. One key piece of evidence that does support this theory, however, is the fact the .22 caliber pistol belonging to the Sadik family went missing shortly before Andrew did himself. It would be sensible to assume Andrew took the firearm with him at some point, maybe for protection, maybe for taking his own life. What hurts this supposed clue, though, is that the gun has never been found. It was never pulled from Red River, despite numerous dive teams combing through the riverbed. It was never recovered by another member of the Sadik family, and because of such misfortune, it was never confirmed nor denied to be the actual weapon that took Andrew's life. Was it unlikely to be the bullet of another 22 caliber gun that killed Andrew? Probably not, but without the firearm being present at Andrew's body recovery point, it makes little sense for Andrew to have killed himself without leaving the gun nearby, or for him to have taken his own life elsewhere, but to end up at the bottom of the river. It wasn't just the missing weapon that foiled a suicide theory, but other missing items hinted at foul play too or at least dissuaded conspiracies surrounding self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Andrew's Tapa Bay sweatshirt wasn't on his person or in his car, and the jacket he was wearing wasn't familiar to any of his friends, his girlfriend, or his mother. In addition, Andrew's wallet was not on his body when it was found, nor was it discovered in Red River after the submerged searches. The lack of a wallet would suggest robbery, and the lack of Andrew's clothes would suggest he engaged in some sort of physical activity between the CCTV footage capturing him leaving the dormitory and ending up in Red River. What the quarrel could be is nearly infinite, but definitely could be a major piece in a puzzle, leading towards a different type of hypothesis, one revolving around untraceable, unconnecting homicide. Our first step with investigating a possible homicide is checking in on the status of serial killers or potentially serialized murders in the general vicinity of Richland County, North Dakota in 2014. Sadly, the research is fruitless, probably a byproduct of the recency in Andrew's death. There was no known homicide victims that fit Andrew's description around the time of his disappearance nor are there any documented serial killers in the northern Midwest region dating to those surrounding months. However, these statistics can sometimes stay hidden for years after the fact, patterns not realized until a decade later, or a serial killer remains unidentified until capture. It's not likely, but wondering if Andrew ran into a shadowy figure at the peak of their invisible reign of torment isn't a complete mirage. Stemming from the branches of murderous theories is a conspiracy highlighting a covered-up internal scheme orchestrated by Semka officers themselves. This theory quickly points out that it was the police who first suggested Andrew committed suicide rather than be a victim of homicide. 
deciding his distaste towards his role as a CI turned him towards darkness. These agents claimed that other confidential informants with similar personal histories as Andrew either committed suicide to escape responsibility or deliberately defiled orders, deciding incarceration was better than risking their lives for undercover drug dealing. The theorists themselves stringed together wild hypotheses, believing that Andrew might have threatened to help his fellow buyers around campus and blow up Semka's operation, leaving law enforcement to decide whether or not to let him go or make him pay. It's a ridiculous assumption to believe authorities would go to such a stretch and kill Andrew themselves, and then immediately point blame elsewhere, whereas they could have just charged Andrew with a felony and sent him to prison for a long time, like originally intended. It would be a lazy inside job if true, and while the police are wrong to just assume suicide was the correct label, it doesn't automatically signal guilt. Rather, it shows their lack of interest in Andrew's case, blowing it by for the sake of upholding their own priorities. Before we divulge our hypothesis of Andrew's unsolved demise, we want to make known our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each video, and we do not attempt to promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. While the proposed theories regarding Andrew Sadik's death intrigue us and make one think about the suspiciousness of the situation, one hypothesis in particular sticks out from the rest as the most plausible. Andrew was killed by a known associate only to him, as a result of his confidential informant work getting exposed or a vague drug incident turning sour. The biggest point to this argument is the fact that the item used to kill Andrew, a handgun, was not found with the body in Red River, in the vicinity of the crime scene, or at any point since the discovery of his body. It's physically impossible for Andrew to have killed himself and moved his own body after the fact, leaving zero trace or breadcrumb trail leading back to the weapon. While it's peculiar that the Sadik family's gun that went missing is more likely than not the gun used in Andrew's death, there are logical explanations outside the topic of self-inflicted wounds. For example, if Andrew was aware his CI work was exposed to other drug dealers around the area or fellow buyers around North Dakota, Andrew might have taken the gun as protection, in case he was confronted by disgruntled associates. Or Andrew wanted the gun to intimidate someone and it was stolen from him during a scuffle. There's even a possibility that Andrew did intend to use the weapon and engaged in a firefight that left him dead and the gun in the hands of the killer taken away to never be found again. The presence of rocks in Andrew's backpack also throw a wrench in the non-homicidal related theories pinned to the case files. Forcing his corpse to the bottom of the Red River so that it wouldn't be found is a common symptom of murder incidents all over the world. Had Andrew simply wanted to take his own life, the rocks and the river in general seems like unnecessary steps to take. The rocks feel like a ploy to hide something, not as an additional tool in taking a life. In addition, Andrew was wearing different clothing than the garments that appear in the final CCTV footage from the university's campus. It's certainly plausible that he just changed clothes between leaving school and his disappearance. But with no leads pointing investigators towards the Tampa Bay sweatshirt, 
it makes you wonder if someone had taken the sweatshirt off of Andrew's body in order to get rid of evidence or make his weight lighter. This makes sense when considering the theory that Andrew was actually killed somewhere else and then transported to Red River. The Sadik family had Andrew's car analyzed and it was concluded that the sitting water in the bottom of the vehicle indicated a wet mass was sitting in the car at some point shortly before its discovery, strongly hinting that Andrew was put in the back of his own car prior to being dumped into Red River. There's a chance the theorized killer dumped Andrew's body into a separate body of water, maybe a pond or shallow lake, and realized it was too obvious or too close to his murder scene. Thus, they retrieved the body, moved him in the car, and put him in Red River. On a similar note, the killer or killers could have gotten drenched themselves in the Red River and soaked the car when they hopped back in Andrew's vehicle and drove away. Regardless, there was more than likely a second party that involved Andrew's vehicle, which resulted in its wet condition when found by investigators, but will never be known for sure as the security cameras at the university student parking lot were malfunctioning the night of Andrew's death. Biggest arguments of all is Andrew's utter lack of history in battling mental illness, displaying signs of suicidal tendencies or creating a single cause of concern in his family and friends regarding the idea he could take his own life. While Andrew had many difficulties in both his personal and his social life, nothing steered him into self-destruction. In fact, at the time of his disappearance, besides having to complete his CI work for drug dealing, Andrew was on the up and up. He had a great relationship with his girlfriend and made excellent grades across his classes in school. Dealing drugs could definitely have created an invisible emotion and psychological stresses around the end of Andrew's life but the true darkness probably came in the people that Andrew encountered, both intentionally and by chance. The unexpected nature of crime and the criminal underworld can bring forth destruction in the blink of an eye, and all it takes is one wrong move or an unlucky mishap for someone innocent to trip up in front of someone malicious. Thus, the risk in selling drugs, combined with working with the police, had the knowledge of hardly anyone in his life left Andrew vulnerable to the unjust nature of the CI side effects, and someone took away his chance at escape and prosperity. Nevertheless, we will always remember Andrew for the person he was prior to the negative labels he received, during the run-ins with Semka and low-level college drug peddling. Instead, we will see him as a quiet yet bright and burning young man with endless potential and an honest hope for not only himself, but his friends and family too. We will attribute his troubles to the positive outcome of Andrew's law, a law giving protections to other confidential informants and their rights to an attorney, and most of all, their rights to speak up and share their thoughts. We all deserve a chance to create our own futures, and sadly, Andrew was stripped of the opportunity. His soft-spoken yet stone-hard diligence will help retain his legacy, as nothing more than an American dreamer striving for a life worth living. This has been Cold Case Detective.